is about a very, very unique person, Rabbi Yosef. His name was Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld. Actually, for most of his life, his name was Rabbi Chaim Zonenfeld. They added Yosef in the last year of his life. It happens to be that his yard site was just two days ago. It was just three days ago. Friday was his yard site. Chof Beis, Adar Beis. He, was actually, he actually passed away in a leap year. So Chof Beis, Adar Beis was his yard site. So it's rather apropos to talk about him. As I mentioned in the email when we talked about him, is, is if a, sort of a microcosm of what happened with the old Yishuv and the development of the political situation, political, not the religious parties as we know them today, but the political, the apolitical parties in Israel, the anti-political parties in Israel, the, the roots of it are in, are in the stories of Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld. Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld is considered the first Rav of the Eda HaKaredis. So if you're familiar with the, the Eda HaKaredis is, is today a, a very powerful organization in Israel, was then as well, but they, 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 they essentially compro, comprise of the people of the old Yishuv. So let's see, let me give you a, a, a short background. Well, actually what we're going to do is we're going to start, let's start with the letter. Because this letter uh, illustrates a piece that that we won't get to in the political part of it. With the political part of it, will come after. So the letter starts on the page with the picture over here. It's a, sort of turned sideways. Mm-hmm. The letter starts. Uh, it's written on the twenty seventh of Tammuz, nineteen twenty seven. Historically, what's happening in, in now in Jerusalem in, in nineteen twenty seven? The Arabs are beginning to stir up the tr- stir up the trouble. Essentially, what happened was from at least my biased point of view in history, was the, the British had basically decided that they wanted to back out of the Balfour Declaration to the best of their ability. 1928 was when they issued the White Paper, which severely curtailed uh, immigration into Israel. But at first they tried by stirring up the Arabs, and they, and they started with that, with that, wonderful, <coughs> that wonderful man, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, who was a tremendous anti-Semite, most Arabs at that time were not anti-Semitic, as it happens to be. For the most part, the Arab population was not anti-Semitic. The Jews and the Arabs got along very well, especially the Jews of the old Yishuv, who had been there really going back almost basically till about eight, since 1810. But we'll get into them in a few moments. Let's, let's read the letter, and then we're going to talk a little bit about his life, what formed him, the crucible in which he's formed of old Yerushalayim, old Jerusalem, um, and, then, and then a little bit of the politics that form what you see today, even some of what you see today with the riots and the very strong opinions and feelings in, especially on the far, quote-unquote, I put this in quotes, um, the far right of the Jew, of Yerushalayim politics. Okay, so you start, the letter starts as follows. My dear brother, may you live until 120 years. I received your special letter. It's difficult for me to write. He's writing to his brother. His brother was in Hungary at the time. He, Rabbi Yisrael originally comes from Hungary. So he's writing to his brother in Europe. Our Father in Heaven took from me to the world of truth our dear son Shmuel bin Yamin al His son at that time was 26 years old. He died on the 60th of ER after he had been ill with typhus for a period of 14 days. Typhus, as you know, very, very severe disease. And obviously, in those days, in old Yerushalayim, one of the, one of the big problems was rampant plagues and, and diseases that could kill people like this. He was a man in full bloom. We had great expectations from him. Hidden are the ways of God. We have complete faith that what appears to us now as a riddle, much like the his mystery of the entire world, will be solved for us in the future, when all we make clear and we'll see how it, is, it was for the best. Really just an expression of very deep faith in Hashem, very deep faith in God. Ultimately, we don't necessarily understand why, we don't know what, what, what 
But ultimately, we believe everything is with us. This is the meaning of our Kaddish prayer. When we say the Kaddish, that's really what we're saying, is that God is, um, is the Almighty, God is holy, and God knows, God knows what's best for us. Much to our sorrow. Unfortunately, though, their, the family sorrows, their, their troubles don't end there. Much to our sorrow, the young wife of our youngest son suddenly departed to her world. His, so he lost his youngest daughter-in-law. In addition, my young daughter suffered the loss this winter of a wonderful fine child. That child was six years old. That child died in that winter. May God who is good and does good give us the strength uh, give us the strength uh, to bear all this with fortitude. Blessed is he and blessed is his name. There is no need to describe these tragedies in detail, especially not at this time. It suffices for everyone to weigh all the circumstances from their own vantage point. And we are now approaching the end of this year. The days are difficult. Nonetheless, one who sees things plainly cannot help but notice magnificent daily providence. All things will, will, will gratefully acknowledge you is recited at the end of the mode in prayer. We, who have survived all that we have, must offer unending praise. Essentially saying, as difficult as life is, but look, we're still here, we're still alive, and we're still thriving, and that's something to be grateful for. Our prayer is, let this war be the last of all wars. This war he's referring to was essentially a, a, a sort of a war of attrition waged by the Hajj al-Amin al, uh, al the Mufti of Jerusalem. This is one year prior, this is, this is one, it's about nine months prior to the slaughter, to the, to the massacres in Hebron. But there are constant Arab uprisings at this point in time. There are constant riots in Jerusalem. Jews are getting beaten up left and right. Rules, laws are being made, restricting their access to the Kosel. Um, things are not going well for people living in, in, in there. So he, he prays that this war be the last of all wars. Of course, as we know, unfortunately, it didn't un- unfold that way. May real lasting peace bring happiness to the world. May it be his will that we will soon arrive at the time which the holy prophets envisioned when all mankind experiences happiness and realizes life's purpose to conduct themselves in the image of God in peace and with integrity. May it be his will that he renew for us a good year, blessed with all the blessings for a life of happiness for us and for all Israel. This is the sincere blessing of your brother who sends good wishes to all your dear ones along with hopes and prayers for mercy. He's essentially expressing his hopes for that things should go well. The letter is an expression of of incredible faith, incredible, first of all, fortitude, but incredible, incredible faith, incredible and very, very powerfully, very pious type of address. He's addressing his brother who's living in Europe, probably probably it was in addition that they were getting support, there was financial support was probably being provided for them from there, and he's writing writing to his brother in response to that. So who was this Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld, and how does he become such a strong person? And we're not talking like one tragedy, we're talking about tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, just like things seem unending, and yet it's, it's written with a certain purity of spirit, and a certain, there's a certain something special in there. So Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld was born, was born in, 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 uh, in Hungary in 1749. He lost his father when he was very, very young. Um, and his mother remarried to a rather wealthy man. Initially, when, when she, he was alone with his mother, she, was on, she couldn't even afford to send him to Cheder. He was in a public school in, in Hungary, which for, for a religious Jew at that time was almost unheard of. But he was a very, very precocious and bright child, but, but uh, she sent him to public school. Eventually, she remarried. And then, um, in the, but that, the, he did not get along so well with his stepfather, and she sent him away to yeshiva. He went away to yeshiva, he was about 11 years old at the time they went away to yeshiva. He ended up in the yeshiva in Pressburg. Now, Pressburg is, is, the, is the Yiddish name for the city. I don't know, what is the, the name, what is the, uh, 
what is, does anybody know what the European name for, for Pressburg is? It's the, uh, I don't remember, it's the capital of Hungary, but it's not Budapest. It's not, it's, uh, um, it has another, it has another name. Um, where the, the yeshiva of the, where there was the yeshiva of the Hassam Sofer. The Hassam Sofer was Ramosha Sofer, one of the great combatants against uh, enlightenment and the reform movement of that day in Hungary. And he became one of the primary Talmudim of, of the Hassam Sofer. And later the Hassam Sofer died pretty, rec- pretty soon after he arrived there. His son, the Ksab Sofer, became the Rosh Hashiva. And Reb Chaim Zonfeld was, uh, was very close to him. You have the name? Bratislava is the capital of Slovakia. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, Bratislava. Yeah. So, um, uh, um, uh, he then moved on from the yeshiva with the Chassam Sofer. The Chassam Sofer to the yeshiva of, of Rabbi Avram Shag, who was one of the greatest Talmidim of, one of the greatest students of the Chassam Sofer, who was invited to Israel to become, to Jerusalem, to become the new chief rabbi of Jerusalem. He was supposed to become the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, um, uh, and that was in 1873-74, thereabouts. So in 1873-74, Rabbi Avram Shag moved to Eretz Yisrael. The Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld was just, just married. I think it was literally right out of Sheva Brachas. He also moved to Yerushalayim. He moved to Yerushalayim at that time. Unfortunately, Rabbi Avram Shag died within a year of arriving in Israel. So he didn't, he didn't live long enough to become the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. Um, he was brought there because... The Rav of Yerushalayim at that time was Reb Zundel Salant. Reb Zundel Salant was, was, getting, was getting older, and they brought Reb Avram Shag to be his successor. Reb Avram Shag died, and instead, um, Reb Zundel Salant's son-in-law, Reb Shmuel Salant, Reb Shmuel Salant took over, and he uh, ended up being the Rav of Yerushalayim for, the, for, more, than, for more than 30 years. So, and so he, was a, he lived to be about 108, and he died in Yerushalayim in in the early 1900s, I believe it was in 1908, was when was when Reb Shmuel Salant died. Now, and, and during this time, Reb Yosef Chaim Zonfeld was living in Yerushalayim, was very close with some of the greatest people that were there in Yerushalayim. To understand Yerushalaym of the time, and to understand uh, Reb Yosef Chaim's later life, and to understand his impact of who he was, he wanted, and what he was, it's necessary first of all to understand the Yishuv, to understand the to understand the the air that he breathed, to understand the aura of the city of the old city of Jerusalem at this time, and and then to we'll, we'll focus on some of the major some of the major people, some of the major personalities. One of whom we just mentioned was uh, was Reb Shmuel Salant, then Reb Yosef Chaim himself. And then uh, there were also um, there were also uh, we'll see there were other there were others Rabbi Shulay Diskin the Rav of Brisk was there was there in Yerushalayim is a very powerful influence also had a big impact on the on the attitudes and and the and, and what happened and we'll talk about the political machinations that happened at the beginning of the twentieth century mostly towards the 1920s, but already beginning in 19, 1910, 1911, and then into the 20s, um, which, were, which really shaped who he was, and sh- just bring out what a tremendous person Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld himself actually was. Um, the the, the um, two characteristics, before I even start describing Yerushalayim, Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld, that jump out at us uh, very, very immediately. One is obviously... His incredible was his in, in, just an incredibly brilliant person and ability to to um, 
navigate in very complicated times along many fault lines and schisms and to be able to appear in many ways uh, the, fr- the closest friend of many people. There are numerous, numerous uh, uh, biographies written about him. Uh, one was written by one of the people that was very close to him during his lifetime, a person by the name of Rabbi Moshe Blau. Now the name Blau might be familiar to you because the head of the Naturi Karta is also named Blau. That Blau was named as Reb, that person was Reb Amram Blau. Reb Am, Rabbi Amram Blau and Reb Moshe Blau were brothers. Moshe Blau headed the Aguda, and which we'll see that's a political group, an international political group that's going to come into play and is currently in play in politics in, in Eretz Yisrael even up until this day. And then there was the the then there was his brother Reb Amram Blau who are. "Quote unquote," they're the they're the anti-politics. They're not they are not involved in politics, but they're Bashita not involved in politics because they want nothing to do with the Israeli government. And we'll see how that developed also during this particular time uh, at at this time from from the old Yishu, out of the old Yeshu of Yerushalayim, out of what we're going to call the Ada Haredis and 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 who they are. Um, so to 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 try to get a glimpse or to try to understand the society. Let, let's 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 just review the history a little bit. So, who was living in Yerushalayim at this time? Who was living in? We said Yosef Chaim Zunfeld got there in the 1870s. In the 1870s, that's prior to the first Zionist Aliyah, which took place in the 1880s, and then the later Aliyot, which took place in the early 1900s and the 1920s. So, we're talking pre-Zionism before any of this type of thing came to Eretz Yisrael. These people were living there. Who were these people, and, and what was their status in Yerushalayim? So. For those of you who have been to Yerushalayim recently, you know that right in the middle of the of the Rechava, right in the middle of the square in the old city, is a big, beautiful synagogue, the Chor Vashol, which they just recently rebuilt. I don't know if you remember, if you were there in the 90s or before, the Chor Vashol was destroyed. It was, it was, it was a shell. You know, if, you, if you see any of the old pictures of Yerushalayim, you just see the old arch that was, that was the Chor Vashol. And, uh, and now they've rebuilt it. It's very, if you haven't seen, if you haven't been inside it and you haven't been up on top and walked around up top, I know they charge money to go in there and it's, it's, it's not, it seems, to me it seems kind of blasphemous, but, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Go, go there in the old city. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. You can walk in. And if it's dominating time, you can just walk in. Oh, I, oh wow. Okay, yeah. So it, it's very worthwhile. So, so here's the story. Here, here's the story of Yerushalayim at that time. Um, as a, just by way of introduction, I was, I was saying, Moshe Blau wrote a, wrote a 70-page monograph, monograph at the time of Yosef Chaim's Petira when he died, sort of a biographical monograph. That's one very good source for, for, for work on, on Yosef Chaim Zonfeld's life. The major work on his life is written by a great grandson of his, whose also his name was also Zonenfeld. It's written in Hebrew in three volumes. It's called Haish al Achoma, Haish al Hachoma, which literally means the man on the walls, or, the, or or as it's been translated into English as Guardian of Jerusalem. Guardian of Jerusalem is a fantastic resource if you want to see much more detail than what we're going to be able to discuss tonight. It's a, it's a very, very well-written uh, biography. And then there's a third biography, an academic biography, which doesn't really address Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld himself, but just dis- discusses all of the political figures at the time in the Eid HaKaredes. Uh, it's written by a professor from Barilan. It's a very academic work, but it's a very fair. It's also very fair. And what's interesting about every portrayal of Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld is that everybody thinks that he was their man. Everybody, uh, everybody wants to take credit for him. 
the 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 Eid HaKaredis says he was our man. He was a, he was he was the first rab of the Eid HaKaredis, which is true. He was the first rab of the Eid HaKaredis, as it was as an organized uh, uh, group. He was their first rab. The um, the the, um, the Agudists say he was the Aguda rab, which is also true because at that time the Eid HaKaredis was joined up with the Aguda. So they think that they say that he was in agreement with the Aguda approach to politics in, in Yerushalayim. And even the Zionists, not, we're not talking secular Zionists here, but the religious Zionists, uh, the people, the followers of Rav Kook also say, what do you mean, Rav Yosef Chaim and Rav Kook were very good friends, they were very close to each other and had deep respect for one another, which is also the truth. But we'll get into all of this. It's, it's a very, he was a very, very complex person. The real truth about who he was was he was a fantastic. He was just a very wise person. He knew when to stand his ground. He knew what things were knew where you couldn't be compromising about, and he knew when to make compromises. He knew when to how to, he knew how to w- walk in between the different groups and to be able so that everybody at the end of the day everybody loved him and everybody wanted to be, wanted him to be their man. And that, that's really the that's really the sum total of Rabbi Yosef Chaim as, as the tzaddik of what he was a humble, modest, um, honest to a fault. You know, not controlled by anybody because he didn't take money from anybody, which we'll see was a major issue. And and re- really, just a just a very special person. So, what's Yerushalayim like? So it's like this: in the late 1700s, there was a group of Ashkenazic Jews. Follow, follow, uh, followers of a man by the name of Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid, not to be mistaken with the, with the Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid who has, a, who has an, an ethical will that, that many people study. A different Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid came to Yerushalayim, they came to Jerusalem, and that small group, it's kind of an eclectic kind of group of Ashkenazic Jews, they were already Sephardi Jews and had been Sephardi Jews there for hundreds of years. The Sephardic Jewish community is much older and it's been there much longer and you'll see was much more settled there. If you want to see a fantastic book um, describing the Sephardic community, the development of the, Jew, of the community in Yerushalayim. There's a coffee table size book. I don't remember who the publisher is. It's called Where Heaven and Earth Kiss. Um, and, and it's a book about Jerusalem. It's phenomenal. It's really, really beautiful. It's a beautiful book, beautiful, beautiful pictures, um, fantastic biographies, and a very, very detailed history of, Jeru- of Jerusalem, really basically from the Crusades all the way, all the way until until modern day. It's really, really fantastic. But the Ashkenazic Jewish community began with this Rabbi Huda Chassid. They came and they borrowed a lot of money and built this big, beautiful shul, the Chorva Shul. Unfortunately, uh, Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, Eretz Yisrael, in general, was not exactly uh, the economic, a booming economic haven at all. It was pretty much a backwater, backward, uncivilized country. You could not go very far outside Yerushalayim at that time. It was dangerous. It was inhabited by highway robbers and all sorts of brigands and all sorts of wild animals as well. People pretty much stayed inside the cities and inside walled cities. If you were outside of a walled city, you, you literally, your life was at risk, even for a day. People, people just didn't stay outside the cities. But they came, this group came, borrowed a lot of money, built a big, beautiful shoal, and went bust. They, they went belly up. Basically, what happened then was that the Turkish government instituted a program that anybody of Ashkenazic descent that settled in Jerusalem was responsible for this loan to pay off to pay the de- to pay the debtors, and uh, for that reason, almost no Ashkenazic Jews 
passing as Ashkenazim. If you pass yourself off as a Sephardi, you get away with it. The Turkish, for some reason, differentiated between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. They looked at them as different groups. So the Sephardim were not held accountable for the Ashkenazi, uh, for the Ashkenazi, for the Ashkenazi, for the Ashkenazi debt. But Ashkenazi Jews, Jews of Eastern European descent who wanted to settle in Jerusalem were responsible for this debt. So no Jews, basically, no Jews wanted to settle, no Jews of Eastern European descent wanted to settle in Jerusalem. Who were the Jews of Eastern European descent who were coming to Israel at that time? There were two major groups. The one was, the one was a group of, of Hasidim, a group of, 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 of disciples of the Baal Shem Tov. There, a rather large contingent of them came uh, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. They settled mostly in Tiveria, and then after, in 1838, there was a very large earthquake that destroyed most of the Jewish community of Tiberia and killed many of them. Hundreds of people were killed, and they ended up moving up to Tzvat. So that's where, that's where the, most of that community ended up over there. In 1810, there was a large contingent of students of the Vilna Gaon that actually came to Eretz Yisrael. Um, there's a famous book called um, Kol Hatar. Actually, the Kol Hatar is not there. Is, 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 um, uh, is uh, is is Rabbi Nachum Kasher's addition to that? The sefer was called. Uh, the sefer was written by one of the Golan's Talmidim. Was a different sefer, but he wrote a sefer about living the the importance of living in Eretz Yisrael. That large group contingent also moved to Eretz Yisrael, and by 1810, the Turks had kind of abandoned this law that written into law that there was some 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 sort of protection to anybody who lived there, and they actually began settling in Yerushalayim. So when you go to Yerushalayim today and you see these people with blue with the blue, with the blue reckle, with the blue um, long uh, bathrobe-like looking thing with the gold stripes, or on Shabbos the gold they wear gold and with the white sashes. Those are those many of those people are descendants of the Talmudim of the Vilna Gaon who settled in Jerusalem in the beginning of the 1800s. So that the vast majority of Jews that were that, that that were living in Yerushalayim at that time, Ashkenazic Jews, were descendants of the Talmudim of the Vilna Gaon. They called themselves Perushim. Um, they called themselves Purushim, and they, 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 were, they were the ones that were living there, just, they were living in Yerushalayim. Now, life in Yerushalayim at that time was, to say miserable is sort of an understatement. It was poor, it was dirt grinding, terribly difficult, terribly challenging poverty. Really, really, really hard. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, it was, you can sit here, but you'll be on the camera if you sit here. <coughs> So, um, uh, really, really difficult. There wasn't much, in way, by the way, of trade. Um, if you were going to do manual labor, you were competing with Arabs um, and, and Arab porters and, and, Arab, and what the, Arab, the prices that Arabs were willing to do the work for. Um, and it was, just, it was just difficult. The climate was difficult. Water supplies were very short. Disease was rampant. There were no hospitals. There were no schools. There, were, there, just, there really wasn't a lot there. Why did people come to Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the spiritual center of the world. It, it always has been. It always, people always believed that. People always felt that. The many of the people that came to Yerushalayim at that time were very saintly people. They were very religiously committed. They eschewed all types of materialism and all types of material gain. And they, they just weren't in it for that. They were there for the, spirit, for the spirituality of it. They lived very spiritual lives. It was top-heavy, to be quite honest, top-heavy with tzaddikim, with righteous people, with rabbis, with teachers, with people who didn't have a lot of um, uh, skills. And the, some of them, you know, there were shoemakers and, 
and and goldsmiths and, and this type of thing. But there just wasn't a lot of money to go around. There just wasn't. We're talking, you know, we're talking the back. Listen, the Ottoman Empire, as you all, as anybody that knows anything about history, by the time the First World War rolled around, the, the Ottoman Empire was called the sick man of Europe. Right? They were already called. It was already. It was falling apart. It was completely corrupt and had been corrupt for hundreds of years already. So even now, in the in the middle middle mid eighteen hundreds, the 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 Ottoman Turks who ruled Jerusalem were despotic and they were cruel and they were and they were corrupt. It was completely corrupt. The Pasha was completely corrupt. Everything about Jerusalem, every, everything about the government governmental structure was corrupt. We'll see. There were there were advantages to that, but uh, but 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 there were a lot of disadvantages also. Um, life was hard. Life just life was just life was just very difficult. Now the people that lived there, those that moved to Jerusalem, people like Rabbi Yosef Zonenfeld, embraced that difficulty. They embraced that lack of materialism. They wanted that kind of life. They felt that they could they could live in in a sort of rarefied atmosphere of spirituality, not encumbered by any sort of materialism or materialistic desires. They, they, they there are stories of people that gave away their tablecloth because there was too there was too I was having too much there was having too much. If you want to see what it was like from through a positive lens, and I'm not going to say that there wasn't a negative side to it, we'll talk about that in a moment. But if you want to see it through a positive lens of what Yerushalayim was like, that there's a five volume uh, series of stories. It's really written for children, but but as a mature reader, what you're going to take out of it is the depth of commitment that these people had. Five volume series called the Heavenly City. Um, well worth your while. It, it, the historical accuracy, I think, is a little bit questionable, but it, it's well worth the read just to understand what these people cared about and what was important to them and the, and the sacrifice that they were willing to make for it. Now, the reality is that not only were the Jews the ones that viewed Jerusalem as the spiritual center of the world, but so did the Christians. And as such, the height of missionary activity or the place where missionary activity was considered at sort of at its peak was in Jerusalem. And who did they go after? They went after the kids. Because as much as you're going to say that the parents are tzaddikim, they're righteous people and they care and all the rest of that, the kids, are, they're not necessarily buying into their parents' program. Sometimes you get lucky and your kids are buying into it, but not all the kids are going to buy into the program so easily. And it was easy to tempt them. One more, one more, one more uh, point I want to make about the Jewish community. They lived in groups... They were called kolels. Each one of them was a separate kolel. There was a kolel Hungary, and there was a kolel Vilna, and there was a kolel either based on the cities that they came from or sometimes larger, the region which they came from in Europe. And basically their parnasa, their, their livelihood, was provided for them by their landslide, by their people from the country where they came. So each kolel got a stipend, or they had a fundraiser, go, 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 go overseas to Europe, and they got a stipend based on whatever was provided for them. And, and within the kolos, there was competition, there was, there was a certain, there was, it was an uneasy, there was a certain uneasiness. They didn't necessarily get along with one another. And even within the kolos, money's tight. And when money's tight, people start asking questions. Did I get my whole chalukah this month? Did I get a whole amount that I was supposed to get? Did I get all the money? Did he get more money than me? How come he got more than me? How, you know, those kind of things. Even amongst righteous people, even amongst good people, you know, these things, when your children are starving, you're going to start asking questions. That's, and that, that's the reality. So just to understand that Yerushalayim itself, there, there was a lot of under, there was an undercurrent of tension that comes from this type of thing. Even though the people lived with a certain level of contentment, but 
but but there there was also this this underlying pressure that was always there throughout this time period of the 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 those that were living there. The second pressure that was on them were the Christians, because the Christians of all denominations came there, and of all of them were of, engaged in missionary type activities. And the way that they missionized were there were numerous ways in which they tried to entrap the children. One was schools. They provided schools. And at the schools, they provided lunch and they provided food. And guess what? When you're starving and your kid's starving, so sometimes people allow the kids to go to these schools and then they get sucked in and entrapped in these monasteries or whatever it was, where the, and, and taken into these, into these big... If, I don't know if you, any of you remember, now they've built a, a beautiful luxury apartments there, but there was something used to be called Schnellers. You remember Schnellers on Rechov, uh, on Rechov uh, Malchai Israel? Do you remember you know what I'm talking about? The German compound? You know about the Russian compound? And all, all these other things that, that are in the old city of Jerusalem? So Schnellers was a, was a big missionary. It was a big Protestant missionary station. And um, later it was a British army camp. But, uh, but, uh, but, and then the Russian compound was, was where the Russian Greek the Greek the Russian Orthodox Orthodox missionized out of, and the and the Greek Orthodox and the Copts, and they they were all there, and they were all trying to entrap Jewish children, entrap Jews, trying to get them come in, and they did two things that very well: one, schools, and two, hospitals. The Jews had no hospitals, no access to medicine. They were poor, and they didn't have any access to any of that. So, th- so th- this was this was the second thing. Now, besides for them, there was also a third element. To, in the mix. And that was, as you know, at this t- particular t- time period in Europe, we're talking now late eight, from the 1850s till 1900, was the period in where the Enlightenment came to Eastern Europe. You know, the Enlightenment in Western Europe started already after post-French Revolution through the, through the 1830s. In Eastern Europe, it begins in the 1850s, and you have the birth of all of these new movements of all sorts of isms and all sorts of other types of things. All of them wanted a root in Jerusalem as well. They wanted to be able to say that they had a center in Jerusalem. They're part of the central place where the Jews come out of. So they built schools and they encouraged the kids to come to their schools and they promised them money and they got all sorts of, all sorts of, of, of types of things like that. Which led to the, 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 the we'll call it the Eid Haredis. It's not the Eid Haredis yet, but it led to the existing Jewish community, this very strongly religious Jewish community there, circling the wagons and being very against anything from the outside. So I mentioned to you there were a couple of very strong personalities at this point in time. One that I mentioned to you already was Rabbi Shmuel Salant, who was, who was considered the, old, the elder of Jerusalem, the post-sec, he was considered the halachic decisor for the majority of people, not for everybody, everybody had their little groups. And then came to Jerusalem in around 1876, a very, very charismatic, brilliant Rav from uh, the city of Brisk, in, in, uh, in, in, which is today is it's Poland, but we call it Lithuania, right? And his name was Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin. Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin was a brilliant man. I'll just tell you something. That, that, first of all, I mean, this, this I see as, as a power of concentration. I don't know if you've ever tried this. But, you know, when, when we read, most of us, when we read, very few people read phonetically. You don't read one letter at a time. You read one word at a time. If you're good, you read five or ten or maybe even a whole line or maybe even two lines at a time. People that are really good can maybe read just by one with one glance, read a half a page. Rabbi Shurleib Diskin, that you would say, could look at a wall like this and tell you how many bricks they were. That was his power of observation. He could look at a tree and tell you how many leaves were on the tree. 
So I know it sounds astounding, but if you ever try this, if you want, if you want to see what it wor- how it works, start with practice with something like a tile floor like this. Right? You, it's better if you try with a smaller tile floor, but try do it as an exercise in concentration. So you start initially, you'll probably look, you can look at four blocks at a time. Then expand your vision. You can see nine blocks at a time. You really expanded. You could probably get up to sixteen. Maybe you could. Maybe you should get. Maybe you could get it even beyond that to about to about twenty-five, right? At a time, you can you can look at it and see twenty-five blocks. But if you work on that and your powers of concentration are strong enough, you can really expand. So you, what, what that means? All it means is Shulay was this incredibly intense person. He was incredibly charismatic, and he was what we would call a kanoi. He was a real zealot. He you know. When he believed something, he believed it strongly in heart and soul. So a lot of what you what he was happened in his time were with the advent of these missionaries and these people that were coming to teach new things. So they say, oh, we're just going to teach them Arabic, or we're just going to teach them French, or we're just going to teach them a new language, we're just going to teach them a little bit of mathematics. But then they would inculcate into the math lesson a little bit of things that are maybe the, maybe your way of life is not so good, maybe Torah is a little archaic, maybe. And what they realized was that they were stealing their kids. And they're taking their kids away, and 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 they're, and they're attempting them to into a way of life that's not their own. Rabbi Shule put a harem on all secular studies in Jerusalem. No schools in Jerusalem could teach any studies other than Torah. Only Torah studies. So, and that was really the position of the of the of the people that lived there. And anyone that that defied that was put into harem. Now, you, for us, harem is a joke, but for them, a harem meant you couldn't go into any shul. Nobody would talk to you. You were, you were completely shunned. Your family was completely isolated. It was a, it was a terrible thing. If you're living, if all you have is, is your chevra, is your group, and, and they had the power to cut off your parnasa. They could say, you don't get your stipend from the, from the kolo, from the money that's raised. It, it was a very powerful tool. Now, that led to all sorts of d- divisiveness and all sorts of divisions. And this is really, this is the, sort of the root where things start from. Rav Shmuel Salant, who was the rub of Yerushalayim, at the same time, but was sort of the overall Rav Mishlaim, was a little bit of a more of a, a milder person. It's not clear exactly. At that time, he wrote a letter to, to the British consul. Now, remember, there, there were... Uh, well, I'll talk about the British in a moment. To wrote a letter to the British consul, basically in which he said, I know that you want to teach in the schools, you want to teach Arabic so that it can make us more capable of being able to, to interact economically, and maybe it's a good idea, but there are zealots in town that are really, really very strongly against it, and it's really going to create a lot more friction and a lot more discord, and it's probably not worth your while, you really shouldn't do it. So, those who are not happy with Shmuel Salant will point to that and say, oh, you see, he was a he was he was willing to capitulate and he was a he was willing he was a compromiser and not not and they don't say it in a complimentary way. Others will say he, really he didn't feel that way, but he felt they had to talk to the British in a way that they would understand it and sort of back off from their desire to quote unquote civilize the people of Yerushalayim. And let me explain to you what I mean by civilize the people of Yerushalayim. Let's let's jump ahead to the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, in 1896. Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress, I believe it was 1896, right, in Basel. And at that, at that point in time, from that point forward, the Zionist movement became a very powerful world force in terms of, or, or self-appointed to a certain degree, as the representation of the Jewish people and the Jewish nationalistic ideal from here on forward. Now, I, I just want to point out to you, 
there were people that wanted to live in Eretz Yisrael that had, a, had an idea of living in Eretz Yisrael long before the Zionist movement came along. In other words, that, that we attribute the desire to live in Israel only to the Zionists is unfair. It's, it's, it's a borrowed term. But, but th- that's the way they represented themselves. And they too came to Jerusalem and they also wanted as this, to be, to, in order to be truly the world representative movement, they wanted the Eid HaKaredis, the old Yishuv, those that were living in Jerusalem, to come into their fold. Now they had two motivations for that. Number one was they wanted to be the sole voice of the Jewish nation. Number two was that as much as I said these people lived in grinding poverty and all the rest of that, they were sitting on millions of dollars of real estate. Literally, fortunes and fortunes of real estate. They had homes, they had shuls, they had chadarim. They'd been living there for a hundred years. They owned property. Now, they, they had no money, but they had property. And their property was worth a fortune. Because, let's not forget, in, 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 the, in, in the 1880s, the first settlements to be built outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem, Nachla um, Sheva um, and, and Me'a Sha'arim, which was the second, and others that, that were built like right outside the walls of Jerusalem, those were all built by people from, this, from the old Yishuv. They were all built by these religious Jews that, were, that, that lived there. And the ideal existed amongst them to build up Jerusalem and to build up Yerushalayim and to build up Eretz Yisrael. I'll tell you a great story of Rabbi Yosef Chaim. Just Rabbi Yosef Chaim, we're focusing on Rabbi Yosef Chaim. Just Rabbi Yosef Chaim himself one time was walking in a certain place and he saw that they had built some new buildings. So he was exclaiming over these new buildings. So the person who was walking with him said, Rabbi, but, you know, it was built by the non-Jews. He said, so, so, they destroyed it. Of course they should rebuild it. That was his rejoinder. Then he said, on a different time, he was talking about where they had just built a new settlement and there was no road leading to it. So he bent down and he picked up 50 stones and took them off the path and just threw them out of the path on the way up there. He said, if everybody will do what I'm doing, there'll be a road there by tomorrow. And that's what they did. Every person that walked by there, 50 stones, take them and move them out. Within a day, there was a road was built. Not miraculously, by natural right? He believed in the building up of Eretz Yisrael as well, as did the people that were living there. But the, the, Zionist, the, 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 the Zionist movement saw that there was this old Yishuv was sitting on all of this property, and they really wanted to, have to get, a, get a handle on, on that as well. And that, that in itself, what their ideals and their, what they were looking for created a lot of problems. So they had two ways of doing this. Number one is they came in and they made a lot of promises. They made a lot of promises of what they would provide, what they would give people, join the Zionist movement and we'll give you money, we'll give you food, we'll give you books, we'll give you medicine, we'll give you all these types of things. That was number one. Number two, they said, if you don't join us, we're going to go to the supporters that are bankrolling the, the, the Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael, the bankrolling the people that live here. And as I said before, people, money was collected in these small, in all these different little Yishuvim, but the real money was coming from the big multi-millionaires, the really wealthy Jews, the Montefiores and the Rothschilds of the world. And when they went, when they went back to Rothschild and they would say to him, you know what's going, where your money is going on when you send it to Jerusalem? It's going to these backward people who are uncivilized, they're dirty, they're unhealthy, they're not doing anything. They're sitting around doing nothing, wasting time. 
They're not, they're not involved in anything. They're parasites. They're sucking the blood out of Europe so that they can, so that they can sit and be lazy in Yerushalayim. That, that was, this was literally the, what went back and forth. You can see where the animosity that exists today, this, these are the roots of it. This is where it was coming from. They, there, was a, there was a very strong feeling for, for that. There's what, there is another person that enters into the picture at this point in time. We're now in the early 1920s, and that, that impacts for us to be able to see and understand Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld and his impact on Jerusalem is to understand this person. Because the two of them are very much tied together. There was a Arav in uh, the city of Yafo in Eretz Yisrael, living in Eretz Yisrael at the time, already living in Israel in Yafo, a very, very great man, a man of tremendous, prodigious output in terms of his svarim, in terms of books, a, a truly a Talmuchacham of great note, a great scholar. His name was Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, Rev Cook, or also known as the first chief rabbi of Palestine. Okay? He was the Rav originally in Yafo, which is today Tel Aviv. <clears throat> at that time, he became, he was, he was chosen, so, so the Zionists created a political rabbinate, and, meaning a rabbinate elected by the politicians, to whom the government would respond or would, would interact with on religious matters. And the chief rabbi of that rabbinate, they chose, for the chief rabbi of that rabbinate, they chose Rav Cook. Now the Ada. The the, uh, the 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 Yishuv Hayashan, the old the old Yishuv, up until that time it had tremendous respect for Rav Kook. But when Rav Kook moved to Yerushalayim to take the position as chief rabbi of Jerusalem, they were incensed. They were furious. Who are you? You go back to Yafo and stay in Yafo because that's where you belong. You're not one of us. Don't come here and start spreading your views over here. Now, as I mentioned. The, the, the Kehillah the, in Yerushalayim, the congregation in Yerushalayim, was not unified. They were not, there was not one. So there was, at this point in time, it was after Rav Shmuel Salanta died, there, wasn't real, there was no real strong leader successor to Rav Shmuel Salanta in Yerushalayim. When Rav Kook became chief rabbi in Yerushalayim, they finally recognized that they need to coalesce under one leader, and that's when Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonfeld really rises to prominence, because they elected him as their leader and as, and as, as the person who would be in charge. Rabbi Yosef Chaim was a very, very wise man, and he understood where, they, where his kehila was coming from, he understood where the, where, the, where, the, where the Zionists were coming from, where Rav Kook was coming from. He told Rav Kook, you should stay out of Yerushalayim. Rav Kook was not pleased. He did not appreciate being told that he wasn't big enough to be the Rav in Yerushalayim, and he stayed. And it, it caused tremendous, tremendous friction. And unfortunately, what happens is when this friction... Um, political friction, right? Fr- friction in terms of the organization. You get people who are not necessarily qualified to do so, who begin to agitate and to and to. Terrible things were written about Rav Kook. They wrote horrible, horrible things. They wrote letters. You know, you've been to Jerusalem. You see how they post up those posters. They posted up the poster. They plastered the place with lies, things that were not true, and they and and they said things. On the other hand. To be fair, Rav Kook was a very interesting and original thinker. And he also said things that really got the people incensed. If the picture's not complicated enough, it gets a little more complicated now. The Ada, or the old Yishuv, recognized that if they were going to combat this international movement, this international representation of the Zionist movement, which was called the Knesiyah, 
And it had, by the way, many, many chashavah, very, very important rabbanim and rabbis who were highly, highly respected that were a part of it. Rav Kook for one, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank was a part of it. He was considered a great Tamachacham. There were others who were really, really great rabbis who were a part of this political, who thought, who felt that it was better to be involved than to, than to try to, try to d- deal with things from the outside. But um, in 1921... So, so at that time, the 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 Ada or the the the, the Yishuv Hashem, which at that point had coalesced and was going to, was then referring to themselves as the Ada Hacharedis, meaning the religious the religious group in Jerusalem, allied themselves with another international movement of Jews called the Aguda. Aguda Yisrael at that point in time, Aguda literally means a bundle or a bunch. Aguda Yisrael was was a very powerful political force in Europe. Um, consisting of some of the greatest rabbis and po- and Hasidic rebbes, all who all had come together to form a group to to represent <coughs> Jewish uh, to represent Jewish concerns and Jewish views in to go to the governments of Europe during that period of time. There was there was there was there were different knisiot gedolot that we talk about. For instance, the launching of Dafyomi was course happened at a at an Agoda convention and other types of things. So Agoda at that time was very powerful. It included Rabbanim from Germany, from Rabbanim from Poland, from Russia, from all of the different Hasidic branches, etc. So the Eidacharites decided to join up with Agoda. In other words, they, if they were going, if they felt if they were going to have to battle the Zionists, they needed a, a broader representation than just this tiny little enclave. Now, the Aguda and and the Eid Acharedis were not. The, the, it's not a good shidduch. It's not, they're not a good match. Like I said, Yerushalayim was very, very fervently religious. The people, as much as the people from Europe were religious, but it didn't compare to what you were dealing with in Yerushalayim. So when when the Aguda, when the when the when the for instance, when the Ada joins the Aguda, so the Aguda sent a representative to Yerushalayim to see what was going on over there, and quite frankly, they were they were appalled. They were appalled. They, they wanted to see, let's say, for instance, what, what's going on with girls' education? What are you doing for girls' education? Well, in Yerushalayim at that time, in the, ni- in the early 1920s, they weren't doing anything for girls' education. Girls were not going to school. So the Aguda sent a lady to represent them to set up a girls' school. This didn't sit well with the Ada Haredes. But the Ada, they were, they were like, what are we going to do? They, they, had to, they had to put up with Aguda. It was like this, this misshapen fit, and, they, and they, they had to fit together. But it, it wasn't the greatest shilch in the world. In 1921, the Imre Emes, who was the Gera Rebbe, Gera at that time was probably the biggest Hasidus in Poland, right? The Gera Rebbe came to Eretz Yisrael, came to Yerushalayim, and he had two reasons for his visit to Yerushalayim. Number one was he wanted to see whether or not it was a place that he could encourage his Hasidim to move. Could he encourage the Gera Hasidim to begin moving to Eretz Yisrael? And number two, he wanted to see if he could make peace. Because at that time, you had all these tremendous Talmud Yechamim, these great scholars, and they were at war with one another. They were literally at war. They were literally at each other's throats. They were killing each other. And, and he wanted to see, could he make peace? In a letter that he wrote, again, his, his intent was to make peace, but it just stirred the pot. In a letter that he wrote afterwards, 
after his trip back to as as a report, so to speak, back to the central Aguda headquarters in was probably in Vienna, right? He wrote basically that you know if you're living in Europe, you have no idea what's going on in Yerushalayim. You can't you can't even begin to understand it. If you were living in Europe, you would think that Rav Cook is some sort of a reform rabbi, and and the Eira Haredes are battling <coughs> against the, against again just against foreign foreign, and it's, it's just not that way. Rav Cook is a tremendous Tamachacham. However, the reality is. He needs to stop writing some of the crazy stuff that he's writing. He needs to stop writing some of the... Some of the so, so what was the main thing? At that time, one of the main things that got people incensed was there was the, 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 the non-religious youth movements used to have their soccer games on Shabbos afternoon. Shabbos afternoon was the day to play soccer. So Rav Cook wrote in a, one of his svarim that these soccer players are building up the body of Klal Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael, and they're gathering in the nitzotzos, the sparks of holiness that are, exist on the outside, and they're building up the physical body of, of the Jewish people, and it's a great thing that they're doing. Oh my goodness, the Ada went crazy with that. You're encouraging Chil Shabbos, you're encouraging people to desecrate the Sabbath, to play soccer on Shabbos, it was, it was, and they put Haramim, and they wrote all sorts of letters, and the Emir Emma said, and the, and the people, the Eid HaKharis, has to stop writing Cherems. Sit down behind closed doors and work your differences out. Stop making these public declarations of, he's so terrible. And this, this type of attitude, this type of war, needless to say, that didn't, that didn't, it didn't douse the flames. You know, when the Emir Emma just got himself painted with the same brush as Rav Cook, and he's another one of these people, and, and all this types of things. It just, it just went from bad to worse. And um, really, that situation, that, that was the situation that Rabbi Yosef Chaim was, was dealing with. And that's why I say to you, it just shows his incredible wisdom and the, the tremendous power of his ability to know when to make a stand and when not to, that everybody loved Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zahnfeld. He was beloved by the Eid Haredes. He was beloved by the Aguda. He was beloved by the by the Mizrahi. They they, they also felt they, they, because of his respect for Rav Kook, they 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 loved him. He he just 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 a few words about just about his tremendous wisdom. So one of the things I, t- I mentioned to you that in Yerushalayim there were different people who were in charge of the Chalukah, in charge of giving out the money. At one point in time, Rav Yosef Chaim Zahnfeld was living in Bate Ungaren. Bate Ungaren, if you're familiar with Jerusalem, it's across the street from Meisharim. It's the side closer to the Mir Yeshiva. So he was there, and he, would, he was handing out the money. There was a family that decided they wanted to be in charge of the money. And they made a big fight with Rav, Rav Zahnfeld. And one time they came to his house on a, in the afternoon, and they were threatening him and all sorts of things. It was right before Rosh Hashanah. Rav Yosef Chaim heard them out. And then he said to them like this. He said, he said, you know, if I've done something wrong, right, I'm going to have to do tshuva. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do tshuva. I'm going to have to repent. I'm going to have to give din v'cheshvan. I'm going to have to make, I'm going to have to, God will make me pay. And if you've done something wrong, and he turned to the people, that were, and he was sort of like a pregnant silence, and the people just f- sort of faded away. They, they, their faces paled. He said, that I'm Michael you. And it was over. There was a, they, they had nothing more to say. They just, they just walked away. At one point in time, Rabbi Yosef Chaim, they came to him and they told him that the chief priest of one of the denominations, well, I don't remember which one it was, one of the, one of the Christian denominations had died, and that the funeral was the next day on Harazesim, on the Mount of Olives, was going to be the funeral for this, for this gala, for this, for this, for this priest. Now, Rabbi Yosef Chaim 
was a, was an isha shalom. He was he was very into maintaining the peace with the government and maintaining the peace with all those that were around him, and and he wanted to make sure that 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 you know. So now he had this tremendous dilemma. He couldn't go to a funeral, which they're going to do all sorts of Christian rituals and all that. He, he's not he's not going to show up to. So what should he do? What to do? They they invited him to the funeral, not to go is to insult them. To go is to participate in something that he doesn't believe in that goes against his very. What's he to do? There, everybody's going back and forth. What should they do? What should they do? Rabbi Yosef sitting calmly by his table. Don't worry. The next day, he calls his. He tells, he tells his rabbi, "Come tomorrow morning to my apartment at a quarter to my house at a quarter to ten. Quarter to ten in the morning. The Leviah, The funeral was supposed to be by like ten thirty, whatever it was. Come to my house." So the rabbi comes, and you know, Rabbi Yosef sitting at the table. He's just learning. He's not, you know, not doing anything. The clock strikes ten. Rabbi Yosef grabs his coat. He says, "Come with me quickly." And they run out of the house, and they run from from where he was living up to Harazesim. They're running up the mountain, up the mountain, on you know. And they get there, right now. The Galachim were very yekish. They're very very prompt. So the funeral was called for ten o'clock. The funeral was at ten o'clock, ten thirty. Rabbi Yosef is coming, huffing and puffing up the mountain. He was a man in his he was in his upper eighties already at the time. He comes huffing and puffing. The Harazesim is not a, it's a steep mountain. He's running up the mountain, and they seem to say, Rabina, Rabina, don't don't worry, take it easy. You don't have to run. Right. So what what did they see? They saw he's coming running to the funeral. He missed the whole ceremony. He missed the whole thing that was that would compromise his values. But at the same time, he showed them respect that he came running to the funeral. So they don't know that he left too late to get there on time. They have no idea. All they see is that he's that, he, that he's that he's paying his respects in the way that it is. It, it, just a way of being able to see things in, in, a, in a chachmadik way, in a way to navigate between the different schism, the different factions, the different parts of a, who he was. That that's, that's, that sort of personifies this person. And when you see what, when we talk about this this tremendous level of faith and this tremendous level of clear that's clear and evident in this letter of being able to accept Din Shamayim to he lived most of his life for most of his life until his much into his much later years he fasted regularly. Almost every almost every Monday and Thursday he for sure was fasting. He fasted uh, besides many other fasts. He just he was he was a person who was of absolute integrity, um, very honest very, at times very, very strong and very, very strident and hold the line. And at times, knowing exactly when you was that you could compromise and you had to compromise. A person that had the respect of all sides and, uh, and lived through a very, very tumultuous and very difficult time and, and really made a, a real difference and uh, uh, is really a part of how the Eid Acharis at least held on to partially onto their identity, despite the pressures that were all that were all around them at that time. All right, we'll stop here. Okay. Next week we will give have another share. Next week I think we'll talk about the Kasam Sofer. So we'll start with his ethical will, and we'll talk about his him because he's one of the principal battlers of the Enlightenment and the reform movement in its in its at its advent and at when it was at its most extreme so we'll talk about him and and, and his life and times and, and what he accomplished and etc yeah not so well not so well after the world war two after world war two yeah and they the which is the religious party 
that has such a tremendous influence on Israel now? The it's a, it's a, a splinter group of the Aguda, of that Aguda, that Aguda group that I was talking to you about before. That's 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 it's a splintering of that group because that group is not whole anymore. They've sort of broken up and it's become factionalized. This group, the Eid Haredis, doesn't participate in the government at all. They refuse to participate in the government. They want nothing to do with it. The group that's in the government has a tremendous influence because the government can't form a government without Without that group. Well, that's very recent. That's, that's, That's in much more recent times. I remember in the 80s when they had two seats. You know, now, now they have you know thirteen, fourteen seats. Now they're a real, they're a real player. Back in the, even in the, even even in the seventies and the eighties, they were not. They were minor. They were bit players. Then how did they get such control over the religious life in Israel? They, be, no, the, the religious life in Israel was always under the under the under the, was always under the rabbinate. Um, that was always that was from the start. That was a deal that Ben Gurion made with them, going way back, going going. Having nothing to do with political parties, but it was, it's outside the political spectrum. Then my question is, why did Ben Gurion make? Because he was it, was, it was, it was, a way of winning. At that time, there were as many religious Jews living in Israel as they were non-religious. Okay. Uh, what I didn't mention, I should have mentioned this as well. Another reason why the Zionists wanted to win over this group was there were little, there were, there were about ten thousand religious Jews already living in Palestine. It's easier to make them into chalutzim than it is to bring over 10,000 Jews from Europe. Right. And we're talking even before the Holocaust. You know, they, they, they were very determined to try to win over this group of people. It was a large group of people. We weren't, we're not talking about just a few hundred. We're talking about people who had been in Israel for 110, 115 years already. They were a large group of people. But when Israel, I don't know if you want to say, reconquered the old city or... or Conquered the old city. They lost it first in 1948. Okay, so it's reconquered. Then. Okay. Yeah. The Orthodox moved in and took over the Kolel, the, the whole the, the Kotel, and organized it and, and, and control it now. Well, yes and no. Yes, because they were the ones that really.